0: If you wish to follow in your Bibles, your own copies, I would ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. And while we'll be considering. This narrative in the book of the first book of Moses, I'm only going to read verses 8 through 11 in Genesis chapter 20. And then I would like to ask Tim Failer if he would pray God's blessing upon the declaration of his truth. Genesis 20 at verse 8. And Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears. And the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And wherein have I sinned against thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou, that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Let us pray. (laughs)
1: mm <laughs> Yeah.
0: Amen. Well, I think we're all aware that we've been looking at a topic, the fear of God. And this is only the fourth message in this series thus far on the fear of God, something that's not spoken of very often. We don't hear that much about it, and yet it really... Um, is uh, found time and again in the scriptures. The scriptures are filled with the fear of God, if we could put it that way. And there are at least three kinds of the fear of God. I expect there are more, but there are at the very least three kinds of the fear of God. There is the ungodly fear. That we saw in Adam after he sinned. There is the absence of fear in those considered last week, or last time rather, where we read from Romans and from Psalm 36 there is no fear of God before their eyes. And the third is that of the godly fear possessed by believers and we do intend to look at that primarily during this series probably beginning uh, in the weeks ahead so we have glanced then at the beginning of the fear of God in Adam and you will recall how that after he had sinned in the garden how he'd sinned against God how he'd sinned against the one with whom he walked in the garden with whom he held sweet intercourse in the garden And who provided everything so beautifully in that garden for him. And I still haven't gotten over that. And I hope I never do. The shock, as it were, of, of him giving all that up. Under that comparatively silly temptation. Regarding that one fruit, that one tree. And yet, he sinned against his God, against his maker. But when he heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden and when God called out to him, Where art thou? He responded, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We then considered last time that there are multitudes of whom it has been said by both David and Paul. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in God's providence, that portion of Romans 3 was read again this evening. In our hearing, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I mentioned in that message how that one writer refers to that delineation, that litany of, of wickedness in those uh, passages, those verses 18 through 20. Refers to them uh, as, as a, well, I refer to them as a chain of seaweed. One writer has referred to them even as Esau's ladder, obviously having in mind Esau's brother Jacob and Jacob's ladder when he saw that vision at the top of the ladder and so on, a wonderful, blessed ladder, and yet here, This is that sad character in the scriptures, Esau, and he calls this Esau's ladder. Speaking of a vacuum, a vacuum of the natural fear of God in such reprobates. If there is absolutely no fear of God, and we can't determine that with regard to any individual with any certainty, we are not gods, we cannot read someone else's heart. But I say nonetheless, if there is no fear of God in an individual, that it's reasonable to consider that person a reprobate. Again, I'm not saying that we can consider him a reprobate. Just speaking abstractly that it's reprobates who have no fear of God in their hearts. And again, that's not to say that God can't instill his fear in the hearts of these folk. There is a a fear that flows from the light of nature. People may be said to do things in the fear of God. When they act one towards another in things reasonable, John Bunyan has said, things reasonable and honest between man and man, not doing that to others which they would not have done to themselves. I think we know from experience uh, in our own lives and from observing others that, that there are people that are concerned, uh, that they don't do something to their neighbor, or even to a relative or a friend, they don't wish to do anything to them that they would not wish to be done unto themselves, and that, that involves a fear of God, they have a fear whether they understand it or not, whether they recognize it or not, they have a fear of doing anything against that one that as we've been taught and we should understand it by now that man has been created in the image of God. And and, and these folk that have this concern, they have some latent understanding of that. And so it's not necessarily uh, to their merit at all but they have this fear of god and it may be said that they also have a fear of something being done to them so they want to do unto others uh, as the expression is as they would wish to be done unto themselves that person when we hear of somebody being referred to as fearless you've heard the expression I'm sure you've heard that applied to people maybe somebody like Evel Knievel uh... he's fearless he jumps over twenty buses or whatever on a motorcycle I mean we all know you and I know anyway that he's just stupid but his fans and his his fan club and, and those that will pay to watch him do that they're very well likely to say he's fearless. He has no fear. It's usually spoken in a positive manner, like that's an ascription of of something wonderful to that person. They're fearless. You can't bluff them. You can't make them afraid. They're fearless. But really, is, is fearlessness any kind of a virtue? Is it any kind of a virtue not to be afraid of God? of course it isn't. The natural fear of God, as it is translated, we want to look at this natural fear of God as it is translated into uh, an element of common grace. We want to look at common grace this evening. Have you heard that term, common grace, before? I expect that you have, but perhaps not every one of us has heard of that. Consider Abraham's comment in this passage that we just read. When he said, surely there is no fear of God in this place. He presumed because they were who they were. They were this pagan nation this or or city and this pagan king. and, And he presumed that there was no fear of God among them. And what did he assume because of that? He assumed that they would take advantage of him, take advantage of of his wife, if they knew he was his wife. And you remember the the verses ahead of that verse 8 where we started our reading that Abraham asked Sarah, tell them that you're my sister. I'll tell them that you're my sister. You confirmed that. So what happened? Abimelech took Sarah unto himself. And it was because the Lord spoke to Abimelech that he realized, and he feared God. Abraham was wrong. There was this natural fear of God in the place, and when God spoke to Abimelech, he said, I didn't know. Basically, to paraphrase it, Abimelech said, I didn't know. But he was afraid because of what he had done even though he did it in ignorance and even though he had done it because of Abraham's telling a falsehood there was a natural fear it became apparent to Abraham that the idea here of no fear of God was not accurate it was not true there was I'm going to say there was common grace in this city due to a natural fear of God among the people And it was demonstrated by the behavior of the king, Abimelech. This is something of a remnant of the fear of God. This natural fear, it's something of a remnant. Or perhaps be better to say it's residual evidence of the fear of God in man. And sometimes it is referred to as a natural fear of God obviously not the same as a supernatural fear of God that, that, that God puts especially into the hearts of his people but it's a natural fear of God but I think that we recognize that all men have this fear of God the only option is that there's no fear of God in their eyes and again as I said they're part of Esau's ladder but among this great multitude there is a fear of God whether they recognize it or not they fear doing things wrong and so we conclude rightly I believe that they have a fear of God I can remember in my own experience long before I became a Christian I had a great fear I couldn't explain it And I can't explain it now, except that it was God at work in me, even way back then, even long before I came to Him, even long before He drew me to Himself through the blood of His Son, I had a fear of taking God's name in vain. My peers, my acquaintances, my friends they didn't have any fear of that at all for the most part that i ever noticed but i had this fear and i never thought about it until after god gave me a new heart and had occasion to reflect back on that where did that come from where did that come from well i can't say whether that was part of a natural fear or whether that was god just restraining me as he restrained, restrained abimelech which is natural fear as well. But I'm just saying that there is a fear in man, a fear of God in multitudes of men that we can only call a natural fear. It doesn't lead to conversion. It doesn't lead to regeneration. It doesn't lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to confession of faith. And yet they have this fear of God that we connect with common grace. Paul taught in Romans 1. He said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Perhaps it was something like that I had been brought up in a church setting. Perhaps I knew something of the commands. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Perhaps I had that instilled in my mind, though it wasn't in my heart, as Paul is saying. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And perhaps I had an understanding that that was an unrighteous and ungodly thing to do. But Paul goes on to say about these men who hinder or hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known of God is manifest in them. For God manifested it unto them. In other words, I believe Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, they know the truth. As these men I'm speaking of, they know the truth. Many of them won't admit it. They don't even admit it to themselves. They don't understand it. But they know the truth. But they hold it down. They suppress it. They hold it back. They hold it under, they would like to drown it. They stifle it. They keep it to themselves perhaps, they imprison the truth, one writer suggested. They hinder it, they hold it, they hold it back, they hold it down, they hold it under. They don't want it to get out to anybody around them or even to themselves, maybe especially to themselves. They hinder the truth. But this uh, charge in Romans 18 sounds, doesn't it, like it is based on David's Psalm 19. In the first few verses, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. When Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, perhaps he's reflecting, I would imagine he was, reflecting on David's Psalm 19 when David declared these things about the glory of God and the heavens declaring them and the firmament showing his handiwork in other words these people see in this natural revelation of God they see God they understand that there is a God though they don't know him they understand in their inner being that there is a God the heavens declare that to them the firmament shows his handiwork Perhaps they're among those that say, yeah, there must be a being, there must be a divine being who made all these things. They don't swallow the uh, Big Bang Theory or anything like that. They have some understanding in their inner being that there is a God, there is a creator. And they have this natural fear from this natural revelation, this revelation from nature, the heavens, the firmament. Day unto day, David went on, utter a speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language, their voice is not heard. But these people see the heavens. They see the works of God every day all around them. And they can't, as much as they wish, they can't suppress, they can't stifle. But they may imprison, they may hold it in unrighteousness. And this is the cause of the further explanation that Paul gives in chapter 2, in verses 12 through 16. We'll only point out the, the most pointed line in that passage. The work of the law is written in their hearts. The work of the law is written in their hearts. I'm going to submit that that was probably the case with me as I alluded to that a little bit ago. The work of the law was written in my heart. I didn't know why, but I i wasn't going there. I wasn't going to take the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word. I wasn't going to use the name of God in vain. I had plenty of other foul language. I wasn't going to do that. I think that there's a, an apocryphal commentary on Paul's teaching in Romans 1.18-18. 21 this is taken from the apocrypha from the book of wisdom listen to how closely aligned this seems to be maybe it's just me but it seems like that. and i know we don't count these as inspired i don't count them as inspired doesn't mean they're wrong it certainly doesn't mean they're dumb listen to what the writer of wisdom 13 has to say For all men were by nature foolish, who were in ignorance of God, and who from the good things seen did not succeed in knowing him who is, and from studying the works did not discern the artisan. But either fire, or wind, or the swift air, or the circuit of the stars, or the mighty water, or the luminaries of heaven, the governors of the world, they considered God's. Now if out of joy in their beauty they thought them gods, let them know how far, how far more excellent is the Lord than these, for the original source of beauty fashioned them. Let them understand this. It is wisdom. Not inspired, but it's wise, isn't it? Or if they were struck by their might and energy, Let them from these things realize how much more powerful is he who made them. And perhaps that's where this natural fear comes from. They look at these things and they imagine, wow, if these things can be made by a a deity, whatever they may call him, how powerful is he? How wonderful, how glorious is that being? Perhaps they ask themselves. Perhaps they're struck by that. For from the greatness and the beauty of created things, their original author by analogy is seen. But yet for these the blame is less, for they indeed have gone astray, perhaps, though they seek God and wish to find him. For they search busily among his works, but are distracted by what they see, because the things seen are fair. You know how that men throughout the history of man has made gods of these things we read of them in the prophets taking a piece of wood and making a god out of it and taking the other part of it and using it to cook your hot dogs come on for they search busily among his works but are distracted by what they see because the things seen are fair but again not even these are pardonable Listen to this last line. For if they so far succeeded in knowledge that they could speculate about the world, how did they not more quickly find its Lord? How did they find not more quickly its Lord? John Flavel, the Puritan, has said this of of this common fear of God. Quote, this is that tender, sensible power or passion on which threatenings work and so brings men under moral government and restraint. And if God, of course, exercised his saving gracious power, it would bring them under his government and under his restraint and under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Talking about natural fear. God has set within the human understanding and knowledge of himself. He has set it within the human understanding and knowledge of himself. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 2. That's what he means when he's talking about this, this fear of God. And he's talking about conscience, I believe. God has put a conscience in man. And those that are without any conscience have to scale Esau's ladder. That's where they belong. Because they have no fear of God in their hearts or before their eyes. God has set within the human understanding the knowledge of himself and his wrath, the conscience, the fear of God. There is a natural or common fear distinct from saving fear. Even as there is common grace, which is less than saving grace. You understand that, that there is a grace of God toward all men, do you not? There is a common grace that all men enjoy, not only just the elect, not only those that are believers, not only those that are being saved. And one has written natural revelation is not saving but condemning it's enough to condemn is it not is that not also Paul's teaching is that not the teaching of God the teaching of God the Holy Spirit we know that there are those who are religious but lost and many of them may have this common or natural fear of God they are religious but lost we read of those in Matthew 7 and that That striking passage where those come to Christ. Lord, Lord, have we not done this? And have we not done that? They're religious. We've done many things. We've done many works. Cast out demons. Depart from me. I never knew you. They only had this natural or this common fear solomon has stated in proverbs the fear of jehovah is a fountain of life that one may depart from the snares of death it's a fountain of life that one may depart from the snares of death and perhaps he has in mind this common fear that it is a fountain of life that it may be a gateway if you will for one to depart from the snares of death This is is just as true of those who are without, those who are out with, those who are outside. Unbelievers, it's just as true as it is for those who are in Christ. It is a common grace. There is this fear, this common fear. That they will not depart from the snares of death, as Solomon puts it, only proves that this grace is not saving grace. This fear is not saving fear. We read some more in Genesis about common grace. After the flood, and Jehovah smelled the sweet savor. And Jehovah said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, listen, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Guess what? For the unbeliever as well as the child of God. You know, Christ underlined that, if I can put it that way. Did he not? In Matthew 5, in that part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he speaks of his Father who is in heaven, he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. That's common grace, brother and sister. That's God's common grace. The fact that they don't know it doesn't make any difference. It's common grace. They're receiving the grace of God and that just adds to their sin and the fact that they don't know it adds more. We read in John 1, nine, <clears throat> There was the true light, even the light which lighteth every man coming into the world. Does this not refer to the conscience, perhaps, of which Paul has spoken? That light, that light, the conscience, understanding, that there is a Creator, that there is a God, and that there are things that are right and things that are wrong. Does this not refer to the conscience, this natural fear of God? Remember Felix, when Paul was preaching to him, he trembled. He was afraid, he trembled but he held off, he hindered the truth, he held it down he held it under, would have drowned it if he could and was there not an effect of the ministry, I mean the preaching of Jesus Christ on all his hearers virtually all his hearers as far as we can imagine there was some effect, was there not? Do we not read in the Scriptures that it, uh, His Word will not return void? That the Gospel is a Savior of life unto life and death unto death? Was there not an effect of the ministry, the preaching of Christ on all His years, And yet only some came. Some were blessed to be the recipients of saving grace, saving fear, Others were not. It is that. This common grace is that sphere of life. Or broad stream of history. Provided by this common grace. That provides the sphere of operation. For God's special purpose of redemption and salvation. John Murray has written. And he refers to Romans 8.28. And I'm sure we all have that. Maybe some of us even have it on our refrigerators. But. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. All things work together for their good. All things. I remember when it came to my heart that that even included my sin, included sin of others. All things work together for good, for God's people. That's a hard nut to swallow, but I believe it's the truth. All things, and these all things that Paul's speaking of in Romans 8, they come to us by way of the common grace that God has bestowed upon mankind. They come to us in the same way that that the grace came to Abraham through Abimelech. In other words, that, that Abimelech didn't cut his head off and so on many times we are recipients beneficiaries if you will of features of common grace from from individuals that never enjoy any more than common grace and they only have a common fear of God as Abimelech we think of Cyrus, King Cyrus who was concerned about the the people, the Jews being allowed to go back and to rebuild the temple. At the end of Second Chronicles, we read about that. Just the very last paragraph of Second Chronicles. And even into the beginning of Ezra, this is what this is what we're told that Cyrus king of Persia that the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath Jehovah, the God of heaven, given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whosoever there is among you of all his people... Jehovah's God be with him and let him go up. Hey all you believers, go on. I'm going I'm to give you all the provision you need to build that house unto God. We don't find anywhere, I don't believe that Cyrus went with him. We don't find anywhere that Cyrus was a believer. We don't find anywhere that Cyrus loved God. But he heard his voice. He heard his commandment. Maybe he even read something out of Jeremiah. But underneath all that, underneath that movement, underneath his actions was this fear of God, this common fear and this thing that works out common grace among the people of God. All things work together. James says in some kind of a parallel, I believe, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. I know the context is believers. But every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. For all. Just as Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Just as Paul taught in Romans. Every good gift comes down the one has written these words, the good harvest may swell the possessor's heart. In other words, God gives this good harvest. He brings the rain. He gives the seed. He gives the plow. He gives the strength and, and, and so that this man can have a good harvest. And this writer says, the good harvest may swell. It may not always work good in him. It may swell. The possessor's heart was sinful pride and self-confidence, tempting him to say, soul, thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But nonetheless, the gifts that God has put in the world for believers, he has also showered upon non-believers. God often employs men like Cyrus. He often employs men. And as I started this series, I referred to the fact that we don't hear the term God-fearing men very much anymore at all. We don't hear the term, oh, he was a God-fearing man. Oh, he's a God-fearing man. Oh, I know him. He fears God. We don't hear that. What is it that we do here with regard to neighbors? If, if any language is ever used with re, regard to neighbors, what do you hear on the news about somebody that, that was killed in an auto wreck or, or that was killed by somebody murdering them and robbing them and so on? What do you hear? Is, is, there, anybody, is there anybody that dies in this, in this state that they don't say, oh, he was a good man? He'd give you the shirt off his back. How many times do we hear that? Well, maybe they were a good man in that regard, in that context. Maybe they would give you the shirt off their back. But it's not because they love you or that they love God. It's this natural fear, and it's a result of this common grace. They have a fear of God. They may do good things, but their heart is all for themselves. And they may not even realize it but their heart is all for themselves. Even if they give, even if they give their bodies to be burned, the scriptures teach. Even if they give millions to charity. Don't we know that it's it's to pat themselves on the back? Even if they keep their name out of sight, if they're able to do that. We know that, don't we? They do good things. The things themselves are good, but they're not done with a good heart. This natural fear of God, we already read about with regard to Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech and Cyrus. One has has put this common grace in the whole idea of fear. I think he's kind of consolidated it when he's made this statement that mankind should be grateful for the remnant of this fear of god in men it is hideous hideous to conceive of a society without it do you understand that we sit and murmur and complain and gripe and i won't use any other words but that's what we do complain about this and that and the next thing you have any idea and you might hear the expression hopefully from none of us but you might hear the expression somebody saying it was hell on earth no it wasn't you have no idea what you just said it wasn't hell on earth and I believe that God in His mercy has used men to try to give us some kind of a, just a little taste, Just, just just the very bottom of the lollipop stick, just to give us a little understanding, perhaps, of what it might be without his common grace. We think naturally of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And that wasn't hell on earth either. That was terrible, horrific, but it was not hell on earth. We have no idea. In Idi Amin in Uganda, more recently. In ISIS, even more recently. Horrific things that we don't even want to ever see. And yet, God's only just giving us a little taste of what it would be like if He lifted that common grace from off the world from off of mankind, what, what they would do to one another if it weren't for His common grace. You have no idea. And all I can say is, oh my. <clears throat> one writer concluded his thoughts with this, I'm gonna say it's a, a charge. Listen, God's redeemed people are careful to thank him for his gift of special grace. But how often is he thanked by the redeemed for the gift of common grace? Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we don't pretend to have been good at this ourselves, but we thank thee now and we praise thee for reminding us of these things. And we pray, O Lord our God, that God the Holy Spirit would help us, would remind us, would stir our hearts up, that we might be ever thankful every day, every moment, for the privileges and blessings of Thy common grace, preserving and keeping Thy people unto that great day. When we shall hear that sound, behold, the bridegroom. Father, do these things for Thy glory. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand rise for the benediction from first Peter First Peter five ten and eleven and the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect establish, strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.